0: I'm gonna be reading in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 24, uh, and it says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what, I, uh, what you hear, whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's word, it is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated.
1: Awesome, amen. Thanks, Adam. Apparently, the uh,
0: wad of cash joke really landed
1: well today, man. We want to be a a welcoming place to all people, even if you're a drug dealer who wants to give to our kids' scholarship fund. We'd love to have you partner with our ministry that way, right? So, all right, we are continuing our series in 1 Peter, and uh, we're going to do it a little bit different this morning. I want you to go ahead and get your Bible out right away. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on the table Bibles, it's page 1016. We're going to turn there right away as we get started because I want us to see something here. So and as you're turning there um, one of the things that I've noticed, we're going to have our 10th birthday as a church next month which is crazy to think that God's faithfulness has been, uh, it's not crazy to think that God's faithful. It's crazy to think that our church has existed for almost a decade now and that has been an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness. One of the things we've noticed though over the last 10 years is how God in his sovereignty, even when we plan like a preaching series a year in advance, how, um, how many coincidences we see of the text we're studying on a Sunday morning and how it aligns with what either our church is going through, what our country is going through, or sometimes uh, if it uh, aligns with what uh, my family and what we are individually experiencing, it's amazing to see how God's word always comes uh, uh, to, to show us how his, uh, his care for us comes through his word uh, and the text that we are studying. So the reason I want you to open your Bibles is look at uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 is what we're going to be studying this morning. And if your Bible's like mine, if you have the ESV, there's a heading above this paragraph. And the heading says something like this Suffering as being a Christian. Okay, suffering as a Christian, suffering for being a Christian, what it means to suffer as a Christian. And so the reason I pointed out that it's interesting how this sermon series tend to align with what God is doing in our church is I kind of wish we had picked a different sermon series than 1 Peter that deals so much with what it means to suffer as a Christian. I think next time I'm going to pick a series of like how to steward unexpected wealth or what do you do with uh, so many blessings you don't know how to handle. Because it seems like this idea of suffering as a Christian these last few years, uh, no matter who you are, where you've been, there's been so many pockets of hardship in our lives. The concept of of pain existing in our lives as Christians is something that we're just so familiar with that when I come to a passage like this, I'm like, okay, really, God? Like, We're going to do another sermon on suffering? If you've been here through 1 Peter, this is like the fifth sermon on suffering we've done so far, but it's in God's mercy, his kindness and his love for us. He brings this topic up again and again and again because in his love, he knows that we only mature through pain. All right, and he loves us too much to leave us where we're at. And so with this idea of we have to keep coming back to this, and even though we want it to be over, we have to realize that like God brings these issues up because it's something he is using to prepare us. Um, uh, this last fall, my uh, nephew, uh, Kelly's sister's son, he uh, had his first day of school, and so he, uh, his parents did what every parent does for a kid's first day of school. They, they start hyping it up. They're like, hey, your first day of school's coming. They took him shopping for his first day of school clothes. They got his backpack. They took his first day of school pictures, everything went down, went, went really well until they woke him up the next day for his second day of school and his response was wait, we have to do this again? How many times am I going to have to do this? And it's a very common thing. I think we, we hype the first day of school and we forget to tell them there's actually a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and it's going to go on basically the rest of your life. You're going to be doing something difficult like school. And I think that's how a lot of us approach this suffering concept. It's like, wait, God, didn't we already do this? Like, I thought we studied suffering in 1 Peter chapter one. Why are we doing it again here in four and in chapter three and in chapter two? And just all of it? it seems like whenever we experience suffering, our approach is very similar to my nephew of, wait, we have to do this again? Like, I, I thought we were done with this. And, and the thing that I've also noticed in churches and in, in Christian community is, is we are oftentimes are very well equipped to move towards people who are in pain, right? God's spirit in us stirs compassion when we see people are hurting and we're drawn to them and we want to comfort them in the midst of their pain. The thing that I've noticed that we often struggle with is what do you do that second week when that person is still in pain? Or, or, or the third week or the fourth week, oftentimes the longer the season of pain goes on, the more confused we get, the more surprised we are, the more the more unsure of how to respond we become. And so then we, we become a place where it's it's okay to initially be in a hard season, but prolonged hard seasons, we start to treat it like my nephew. Of, Wait, are we doing this again? Like I, I prayed for you last week. Are you still suffering? Are you still struggling with the same problem again this week? I thought we already talked about this. But again, God in His kindness and His love, He knows that we only grow through pain, we only mature through pain, and, and and because of his love, he loves us too much to leave us where we're at. So this morning I'm praying that as we study this passage, as we look into what it means to suffer as a Christian, that God would use this to not only mature us as individuals so that we can be the kind of people that when we encounter pain, we handle it in a Christian way, a distinctly Christian way. But I'm also praying that this topic is something that works into our church's culture even more than it has already, so that we can be at a place that's safe for hurting people, safe for for sufferers and sinners as well. So would you join me in prayer as we get ready to study? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you love us enough to uh, deal with us exactly where we are when our lives are messy, when they're full of pain and suffering, when it feels like we've been betrayed and hurt and wounded, and there's just so many evidences of brokenness around us. I thank you that we can turn to your word, that we can, can hear it uh, study together in community. We can hear the words that this is, is your word. It's true. It's given out of your love. And so I pray that as we open up this uh, another topic of suffering, another a week of what it means to be a Christian who is experiencing pain, I pray that your spirit would sovereignly surround each of us in a special way, that your glory would rest in this place so that as we study this, we might all leave changed because of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so let's pick it up. Chapter four, verse 12. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, so here it is, he's, Peter's beginning, he's saying that we shouldn't be surprised, don't be caught off guard, don't act like when you're in pain or when you're suffering that something strange or out of the ordinary is happening to you. He's saying that, that as Christians in our life, living in a broken world, we should expect pain and suffering to be a part of our existence. And, and the, the reason is, it's very simple, right? If you love someone and you know that hardship is coming their way, the most loving thing you can do is try to get them ready for the suffering that is going to exist. You, you want them to, to brace for the punch that's coming their way, that kind of thing. And so Peter, out of his love for his, the people he's writing to, saying, don't be surprised, don't be caught off guard. And so if you think about it, in this book so far, Peter has been telling us some amazing things about God's work in our lives of Christians. He's, he's saying that, that uh, because of Jesus' work on the cross, we have now been, been made sons and daughters of God. He's been giving us a new life. We have a, a future inheritance of glory that's awaiting us. We're a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, all these amazing things. And it's like he's been setting this bar so high, saying here's all the reasons we have to be filled with hope. And now he's, he's kind of bringing it back down to reality and saying that, that future glory, that future hope we experience, and that present pain that you are currently walking through, those are not at odds. Okay, th- those things are not a contradiction. You can be a, an heir of the throne of God and what he has for us in the future, and you can experience suffering. Don't be caught off guard. And, and this, this is a teaching that comes right from Jesus himself. In, in, in John chapter 16, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. Right? One of Jesus' goals in his ministry was to prepare his disciples for the fact that if you follow him, you're not signing up for a life of wealth and comfort and ease. You're signing up for a life of hardship. and You're signing up for a life of persecution and pain that exists. And, and what this shows me is that this phrase, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard when suffering comes your way. It shows how often I am completely surprised and completely caught off guard when pain comes my way. Like whenever I experience a, a moment of suffering, my first reaction is, is, why is this happening? How could this be happening? How is this happening again? I, I already did my time. I, I put in a hard season last year. Why is this year proving to be difficult again? And, and those thoughts that I have, I think it's very common for all of us as humans to have these questions of, of, why is this happening again? Why is this hard season still going on? And I think what that shows is that my thinking has more to do with karma than it does with Christ. Right? I, I think I already did my time. I've already worked out that, that other suffering. I should be living the good life now. Or I have been a good person. Why is this happening now? And that, that has more to do with karma than it does with Christ. Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble. Don't be surprised. But he begins here, Peter begins by saying, beloved, don't be surprised. Right? Like, don't skip over that word. The reason Peter is telling the followers of Jesus to not be caught off guard by suffering is because he loves them. Okay, and Peter's love for his audience is merely an extension of the love that Jesus has for Peter and the love that Jesus has for all of his people, the love that he has for us as well. Again, so so if we only mature through pain, Jesus, in his love, he cares about us too much to leave us in the place that we are. He wants us to grow. And that's why suffering always has a purpose. As a Christian, pain in your life is not meaningless. It, it, is, it always has a reason, a goal. He says here that, um, that the trial that comes upon us is to test us. Okay, when you experience pain as a Christian, it is a testing. And it's not a testing as in like God saying, all right, let's see what you're made of. Let's see what you got. Do you got enough to endure this? When he, The Bible talks about testing. It, it means that it's a refining process, right? It, it's like like gold being melted down and all the impurities rising to the surface. It's a, it's a way of proving and strengthening us as followers of Christ. That's what the test of suffering does. There's an interesting book called The Coddling of the American Mind where these authors point out that um, there's different ways we can view humans. Uh, One way that we view humans is as if if we're fragile. So you think of like a a, a glass cup. Like if you drop a glass cup, it's fragile, it's going to break, it's going to shatter, it's not going to be able to be put together. Uh, Another way of viewing humans is as if we're we're durable, like a plastic cup. If you drop a plastic cup, it's going to bounce back, it's going to be completely fine. But what these authors point out, and I think what Peter is showing us here, is that humans are actually anti-fragile, which means the more you drop it, the more the tension that that it absorbs, the stronger we actually become. Peter is saying here that your soul is anti-fragile. The more difficulty you go through, it proves, it tests, it strengthens your soul so that you are a stronger follower of Christ than you would have been without the suffering. So think about some of the most mature, godly Christians that you know, the the older uh, saints in the faith or people that you look up to that you say, when I get to that point in my walk, I want to be just like them. And I'm willing to guess that without an exception, every single person that pops into our mind that we say that is a mature Christian that I want to emulate, they have had prolonged seasons of suffering. You don't get to become a mature Christian without stewarding your suffering well, without that being used to strengthen us. And that's something that is, is always the case in the scripture. That anytime it talks about why we suffer, there's always an end goal in mind. It's always with a direction that we're supposed to be going. So here's another famous passage, James chapter 1. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, again, that testing, that same word, testing of your faith, Produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It, it produces suffering. Produces something in the heart of a Christian that nothing else can. Romans 5 says the similar type of thing. It says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, it it results in endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He's saying we only mature through pain, and God loves us too much to leave us where we are at. And the interesting thing here is this passage in Peter, the passage in James passage in Romans, all of them use the same concept of how you respond to pain should be one of joy. All three of those passages give us the command to rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. And again, rejoicing in the midst of our sufferings, we're we're not joyful for our sufferings. God is not uh, asking us all to be masochists who delight in pain. God is not a sadist who enjoys inflicting pain. All three of those passages say that the reason we can have joy is because of what suffering produces in the hearts of those who follow Jesus. And and that's, that's why it's so important for us to remember that we've said this so many times, right? Happiness and joy are different things. Happiness is based on my circumstances and my experiences. It's an emotion that I cannot control. You cannot command someone to be happy. Joy is an awareness of God's glory that produces a triumphant confidence bigger than your circumstances. All right, I'm so aware of God's glory and his power that I have this confidence that says no matter what I am facing right now, what, I, what my circumstances are, my confidence in God and his glory is making me believe that something better is coming in the future. That's how we can have joy no matter what. So, so each of these passages says to rejoice in sufferings. But look at how Pe- why Peter says we should rejoice. He says this is the reason why we should rejoice. If you look at verse uh, 13. He says, in so far, we, or we rejoice because as you share in Christ's sufferings, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so there's two things there. We're sharing in Christ's sufferings, and we're rejoicing when his glory is revealed at the end of time. So think about sharing in Christ's sufferings. Peter's talked so many times in the book so far about how Christ's sufferings, his endurance of pain and the wrath of God on the cross, is the reason why we have fellowship with God. And so so whenever we are suffering, as a follower of Christ, we're participating in the same suffering that Jesus had that brought us to reconciliation with the Father. But I think another thing we can look at with this is how many varied and different kinds of suffering Jesus endured during his time on earth, uh, suffering that he endured as an example of why he loves us. So, So think of some hard things that exist in your life. And there is always a corresponding moment in Jesus' life where he experienced a similar type of suffering. Okay, so, so maybe it's uh, like unexpected home repairs or a, a car breaks down. There's a financial strain in your life. When you turn to Jesus, you realize that that Jesus experienced poverty. He, He was homeless. He had no place to lay his head. So when you experience financial hardship, you're sharing in the same suffering that Jesus had. And then you can rejoice because it's a reminder that God is our provider and he gives us everything we need. Or let's say that your pain that you experience is, is a broken family. All right, I, Your family is not interacting the way that you would want it to be. You're participating in Christ's sufferings because Jesus' own brothers and sisters rejected him. They didn't believe he was who he said he was. And so you're sharing in that suffering and you can rejoice remembering that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Or, or let's say that the, the pain you're experiencing is just a loneliness and broken relationships everywhere. You can, you're participating in the suffering of Jesus, who was rejected and reviled by men. And you're reminded that he was rejected so that we could be accepted and brought into relationship with the Father. And we can rejoice in the fact that as we participate in Christ's sufferings, his suffering produces something in us that nothing else in life can. Okay, that's the first reason. The second reason he gives is saying that it is something that is preparing us for this future glory. It's this forward-looking hope that says because of what Jesus did on the cross, there is a better future that is awaiting all of us. And when we encounter his glory, we're going to fully rejoice and experience the fullness of joy that we can't hear in this broken earth. And so so that's a reminder of, again, the difference between happiness and joy. So happiness, oftentimes we have to borrow against our future joy in order to maintain happiness now. We have to do something to try to create a culture that we can find happiness now. What Peter's saying is we, if we are rejoicing in God's glory, then any moment we have joy here on earth, we, we, it's an early withdrawal from a future inheritance. Right? Our inheritance in the future is infinite happiness and glory with God for all of eternity. And so if you are experiencing joy now, you're just taking an early withdrawal from that that inheritance that awaits us in heaven. But the interesting thing is it's not just a future inheritance that we get to have joy in. It's also a present reality, which is where he goes next in verse 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So a lot of times when we talk about joy uh, as Christians, we're only thinking of the future. We think, well, because there's a better hope that's awaiting us, we can have joy in the present. What Peter is saying here is actually in the midst of suffering in the present, you are blessed. That is a current reality that you get to experience. This is a a mind-blowing concept. And the reason why he says this is the case it says that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, now if you read through this passage, you're going to notice that the word glory shows up a bunch of times. Not only in chapter 4, but really throughout all of 1 Peter. All right, Peter is obsessed with this idea of the glory of God. And, and the glory of God is such a rich theme throughout all of the scriptures. Uh, in the Old Testament, think about uh, God's glory is the, the concentrated manifestation of all of his attributes and beauty and majesty and power and love that is, that is concentrated in such a way that it explodes in some visible manifestation of, of light or flame or, or some kind of miraculous sign or wonder. And so if you think about like the, the pillar of smoke or the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt, uh, it, it's, it's God's glory entering the temple like a thick, heavy cloud. It, it's, it's fire falling from heaven to uh, ignite Elijah's sacrifice. All of these things are just different pictures of what the glory of God is like. And Peter is saying that as a Christian, the glory of God rests on us. So, so that, that one of the things that that means is if you are a follower of Christ, that infinite power and majesty and glory of God resides within you. Your, your heart is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That God himself dwells within you and all of the blessings that that comes from. But what Peter is referencing here specifically is he's talking about when you are persecuted, when someone insults you because you are a Christian, you are blessed in a special way. He says that that God's glory rests on you. And and what he's saying here is that, that because of the pain you're experiencing, when you are insulted for being a follower of Christ, that God's presence dwells on you, rests on you in a special way that it does not any other time in life. Right? Think about it. God is near to the brokenhearted. And so if you are experiencing pain as a Christian, it's, it's because of that pain that God draws near to you in a special way and his glory rests on you in a special way. So think about the two comparisons. You can get rid of God's glory in his presence and not be insulted, or you can have the, the glory of God resting upon you and receive some insults. What Peter is saying is if you compare those two things, there's not a comparison. That the glory of God resting on you is far more significant and worthy of our lives than anything else. Let's keep going. Verse 15. It says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so, so what he's saying is if you are suffering, the first thing we have to do is evaluate, are we suffering for the right reasons? right, that there's some pain that is self-inflicted and it's its own judgment for the sin that we've been committing. Uh, I, as a side note, I love Peter's list here. He's like, uh, if you're suffering as a murderer, like if, if you're a, a hitman who kills people or if you're a thief or if you're like my neighbor who's just super nosy and meddles in my business, all of those things are just reasons to be persecuted. It's a, it's a bizarre thing to list being a meddler along with being a, a murderer. But I, th- I think what Peter is doing there is saying, what, what commentaries have pointed out is that Peter's telling to focus on the mission that we have, the mission of doing good deeds for the glory of God. He's saying, don't get distracted from that and other things. And if we get off target from our mission, we're going to experience some pain and some suffering. And so, and so what, what Peter's doing, big picture here, he's saying, oftentimes sin is its own punishment, right? If you lose your temper at your boss and you get fired, you're not suffering as a Christian, like you're experiencing the consequences of your sin. If you are constantly talking behind people's back and gossiping and you're experiencing loneliness, you're not being persecuted, you're experiencing the consequences of being an untrustworthy person. Oftentimes sin is its own consequence. But then he goes on to say, but if you suffer as a Christian. And so what he's doing here is he's saying there's, there's two ways to suffer. We can suffer as the world would, as sinners, or we can suffer as a Christian. And I think this is the part that trips me up every time I experience something difficult. Because when I experience something difficult, I think, okay, I have an excuse to act the way that I do. Right? I, I, don't you know what just happened to me? I, of course I can be short-tempered with my kids. I'm having a really hard week. Right? Like, like whenever we're, t- we're tired and we get grumpy or we're, like the whole being hangry, right? I'm hungry, so I have an excuse to be angry at my coworkers or whatever it is. A lot of times we think that because we're experiencing hardship, we have the excuse to behave however we want. But Peter is saying, no, if you're going to suffer, suffer as a Christian, Don't suffer the way the world would suffer as a Christian. There has to be something unique about the way that Christians experience pain for the world to see the glory of Jesus. If I encounter pain the exact same way my non-Christian coworker does, then there is no way that they're going to see the glory of Jesus in my life. If you deal with pain the exact same way your non-Christian neighbor does, there's no way they're going to see the beauty of Jesus and be attracted to him. Remember, this, this chapter four comes after chapter three where Peter said, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. He's saying that we should live in such a way that people ask us questions about how we're behaving differently. And the unfortunate thing about living in a broken world is the best opportunity to show the world a difference in our lives is the way that we suffer as Christians, right? Suffer as a Christian. Don't suffer the way that the world would. Again, we only mature through pain and Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we are. This does ask the question though, it raises the question. If we can either suffer as a Christian or suffer as the world does, um, Peter here is specifically talking about being insulted for being a Christian. And so the question that comes to my mind is not how do I suffer as a Christian? The question that comes to my mind for me most often is why do I do so little suffering as a Christian, right? Why do so few people hate me because I'm a Christian? Why do so few people speak against me because I'm a Christian? Right? So, so we have some uh, awesome brothers and sisters in this church who have experienced very real suffering here recently where they have lost friendships and relationships because they won't stop talking about Jesus. And that is such an encouragement and a blessing to hear that, that someone loves Jesus so much they're willing to be ostracized and reviled because of they won't shut up about how great Jesus is. Okay, but there's also this haunting verse in Luke where a lot of times we talk about how, um, like, hey, it's okay when you're suffering as a Christian, but but Jesus in Luke chapter six kind of turns the coin on that, and he says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets, right? Do you know how how you're really in trouble? Is if everyone likes you, right? The worst thing that could happen to you is you'd be the most popular person at work, like if, if every kid in your class thinks that you're the coolest kid in your class, then you're probably not living out what Jesus is saying here. And I, I think that's something that that is a gut punch for us as Americans who have lived with such cushy lives for so long, right? That this, this, this question of, oh, our, our Christian heritage as a nation and the founding principles and all that stuff. And we're forgetting that Jesus says, woe to you when all the world speaks well of you. And we spend so much time just trying to be thought of well by outsiders that we don't even actually stand for what Jesus has shown us or don't, don't uh, speak of Jesus so intensely that people can't help but understand that what it is that we believe about him. So, so the question then, if we are not suffering as Christians, is are we too timid? Right? Do, do I not speak up when I should? Are there chances to evangelize or share the gospel that I keep my mouth shut so that I won't be thought ill of? Are we too timid? Or are we too isolated? Is there anyone in my life I have a relationship with who will actually persecute me for Jesus' sake? Am I around enough non-Christians that I can do something worthy of being persecuted? Oftentimes, as Christians, we can live such isolated lives where we only go to school with and work with and talk with and hang out with other Christians. And why would anyone persecute us when we all believe the same thing? All right, we need to be out there in the world enough that there are people in our lives we have a relationship with who will actually be pissed off if you tell them that they are going to hell apart from Jesus. All right, that's the kind of uh, relationships that we need to have as followers of Christ. Let's keep going. He, he's, uh, Peter will end with this warning here of what, uh, what's really at stake. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God. And so, so Peter, is, he's referencing up two passages here, one in Ezekiel, one in Malachi, two Old Testament prophets who have this, this prophetic vision from God that says, God's judgment is coming to the house of Israel. It's beginning at the temple, the household of God with the priests, and then the judgment will go out from there. And so, so Peter's using that same illustration. And what his point is, though, is saying he's talking about suffering as a Christian, the pain you experience as a Christian. And then what he's saying here is there is something far worse than being not thought of well by non-Christians. With the suffering you are experiencing now as a Christian, there is something far worse out there than that. And that is the judgment of God if you live your entire existence apart from a relationship with him. If you live in rebellion against God, the judgment that awaits you is far worse than any suffering we could experience here as followers of Christ. So so, so with this warning, there's there's this this hard warning that says, if you live a life of rebellion against Jesus, the only thing that awaits you is an eternity of separation from God and punishment. But the invitation is, if you live a life for Jesus, faith in him, relying on his grace, his mercy sound on the cross, you're invited into a life of suffering now. But on the other side of that is glory to come. So so, uh, that passage that that Adam read to get us started, this idea of um, don't fear someone who can destroy your body. Right? I mean, anyone can kill you if they want, but fear the one who has power over your soul and what happens after you die. Right? Like, if God knows even when a sparrow falls to the ground, surely he knows what's going on in your life. You're of much more value to him than even a sparrow. So he wraps up this passage, verse 18, 19, he says, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so when he says the righteous is scarcely saved, he's not saying you're barely going to make it, like you're saved, by, but, but by the skin of your teeth, you just barely eked into heaven. What he's saying is if you are saved with great difficulty, then what's going to happen to the people who are not saved, okay? And what is the difficulty of our salvation? It was the price of Jesus, the only innocent person who ever lived, taking the punishment that we deserved upon himself on the cross. And so if our only hope comes from the difficult path of salvation that Jesus walked for us, then what hope would you have apart from Jesus? If we are scarcely saved but by the grace of God, what about the sinner who has no grace to cover them? And so from there he says this invitation, entrust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, This this idea of a faithful creator, this is the There's plenty of times in the New Testament that it references God as creator. This is the only place in the New Testament that it gives God the title of faithful creator. And what Peter is doing, he's being very intentional with that, saying, you're entrusting your soul to a faithful creator. The God who made heaven and earth, who holds the atoms of every single particle in existence together by his sovereign care, you can entrust yourself to that God because he is sovereign over your life, which means he is sovereign over your suffering. Uh, there's actually, in the ancient world, there was one other group of people who believed that you, sh- you could find joy in the midst of suffering, and that was the, the Stoics, the, the Greek Stoic philosophers. Only they taught that suffering is arbitrary, it's random, it's meaningless, it's just the blunt force of nature coming against your existence, and so it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it, so, so buck up, keep your chin up, and just keep having joy as you go through a life filled with pain and suffering. And Peter is saying some similar things, but at the same time, completely different than that. He's saying, yes, suffering is inevitable. You need to have joy in the midst of suffering, but it's not because there's no hope. It's not because it's arbitrary. It's because even your pain fits under the sovereign care of your loving and faithful creator who made all of the universe. And because of that, we can entrust our souls to him. And this word entrust is a beautiful, beautiful concept. It's a, it's a banking term that means to give something of value to someone else for safekeeping. And the most, play, the most famous place it's used in the New Testament is on the cross when Jesus is dying. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. What Peter is doing is saying we have the opportunity to respond to pain the same way that Jesus does by giving our suffering over to Jesus and saying that we trust him with our lives even in the midst of difficulty, right? Because we only mature through pain and Jesus cares about us too much to leave us where we are. The thing about this uh, sermon and this, this whole series through First Peter that makes it so important is there's, there's nothing that gets to the core of our heart as fast as pain. Like pain has a unique power over our lives to reveal what's really on the inside, Right? That, that's why when you get hurt, you can either yell out like, a prayer, like a godly person like my mom. She prays when something startling happens. Or you can yell out a cuss word like me, like a sinner in progress who's trying to, <laughs> to mature more and what it means to follow him. But pain has this unique power to expose what we really believe at our deepest level. And, and so, so what, what Peter is doing here is he's giving us this invitation saying, Jesus loves you so much, he wants to expose the dark parts of your heart. He wants to expose the weak parts of your soul so that they can be cured. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So there's a lot in those verses that are super powerful and lots of encouragement. But think for a second how trite and offensive it would be to just read this verse to someone who's suffering. Like at the surface, doesn't this feel like a slap in the face if someone's like, hey, I'm really in a hard spot. And you're like, well, hey, it's a light and momentary affliction. It's gonna give way for an eternal way to glory here soon. Good luck, kind of thing. And I think that's how we view this idea of suffering a lot of times. Is it's like it's just this coffee cup theology that's something you can, you can put on your wall that looks, looks cute, uh, but doesn't really help us when the rubber meets the road. And the reason is because when the rubber meets the road and we're really experiencing suffering, it exposes what we really believe. And in those moments, it does not feel light Right? If you've had a hard year this last year, it does not feel temporary. It feels like it keeps going on and on. And, and my God, when is this going to end kind of prayers? And so in those moments, though, this invitation is, what is actually what's best for you? Like, Is what's best for me to have just a comfortable life? Things where things, my, my sin isn't exposed, my, my weakness isn't strengthened, where my soul is in the same spot it was last year? Or is what's best for me is God to mature me through pain because he loves me so much? Uh, there's this awesome, uh, one of my favorite books is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And it's this, this metaphor of this guy who's dead who gets to visit, he leaves hell for a day and goes and visits heaven. And he gets to encounter all these different souls that are experiencing this invitation from God. And one of the souls that he encounters is this guy who has this uh, lizard on his shoulder. And it represents his, his sin and his failures and his weaknesses. But, but he kind of likes the fact that that lizard is there still. And so this angel comes, and he comes with this invitation saying, I'm going to kill that lizard for you so you can be who you're supposed to be. And every time the angel gets close to the lizard, like it starts to hurt the guy because that, that sin has become a part of the man himself. And so it like threatening the sin. It feels like it's threatening that guy himself. And so every time the angel tries to kill it, the guy begs him not to. And at one point, the, scene, like the, the climax of the scene is the angel says, let me kill it for you. And the guy says, no, it's going to kill me if you kill it. And the angel says, no, it's not, but suppose that it did. And that's the point that breaks this guy, and he says, you're right. Even death would be better than this. And I I think that's the part about pain that exposes where we're at, is saying, God, this season hurts. Why is this going on still? This is going to kill me. And God in his love is saying, no, it's not. But even if it did, wouldn't it be worth it? Right? Because I, the parts of our souls that we are running from, the parts of our hearts that have not yet fully experienced the redemption that God has for us, God in his love is exposing those and bringing them to the surface. And the only way he can do that is through pain. And so in light of that, now let's go back to Second Corinthians 4. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In light of that, out of the untold pleasures and joy that await us in heaven, the glory that God is inviting us into, we can bear up under suffering, we can know that God's using that to redeem us, we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you love us. We recognize we don't deserve that. We are broken and frail sinners. Uh, but you know our frame. You know that we're dust uh, and you choose to love us. You choose to send your son to die for us. And God, so it's in his, his power, it's in his mercy that we stand. It's in his grace that we find our confidence. And so I, I pray that as we reflect on what it means to, to grow through pain, to mature through difficulty, I pray that we would see that as a reflection of your love for us. Uh, We would not run from the difficulties in our lives. We would not be surprised when trials come our way. But we would know that that's part of your loving work in our hearts to bring us to the the full, beautiful creation that you've called us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we have some discussion questions to get us going. We're going to spend about 10 minutes at our tables processing this stuff. So uh, they should be on the screen behind me. Um, So why are we so caught off guard when we suffer? And how will this passage prepare you for future trials? Also, how has God matured you through difficult situations? Uh, share some examples to encourage those at your table. If you're able to say, this is a season God brought me through, or this is a season I'm in, those stories are the things God uses to strengthen us and to bring uh, encouragement uh, to other people at our tables. And lastly, when do you most struggle to genuinely trust God? And how does this passage in the Second Corinthians passage help with that? So let's do that for about 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship and communion.
2: We're going to transition to communion. Uh, before we do that, I want to pray because I think we need it. Uh, we always need it, but uh, um, yeah, let me let me pray for us. Yeah, Lord God our Father. Um, yeah, this is a broken world, and we are broken people. And uh, through this brokenness, I ask that you continue to remind us that uh to entrust ourselves to you our our faithful creator yeah, while we are doing good lord so this word i ask that you just continue to remind us and help us through this and lord i know there are people here that are hurting and uh, and i ask that you help them through that lord I ask you the physical pain that you bring healing and help and for emotional pain that you bring healing and help and for relational pain, that you bring healing and help, and uh, through this, help us lean into you and to trust into you and to continue to entrust ourselves to you, and uh, and uh, just help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, um, yeah, so we do a communion. uh Here at Missio, we do open communion. So anyone who is a believer in Christ, who has put their faith in salvation in Christ, you're welcome to the elements that are at the tables. Uh, If you have not put your faith in Christ, just know that Christ died for you, and um, you can come to Him. And um, yeah, there's different ways we can uh, worship. We're going to worship by singing. We can worship by giving. Uh, There's a box in the corner. There's a spot on the website. Uh, We can worship by prayer. Uh, Jessica and I will be in the corner if you want to pray with us. You know, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, when we come to the elements, this is our time to remember what Christ has done for us. He said, uh, as often as you do this, do this. In remembrance of me so i'll pray once again lord help us to to remember you and uh, as we come to you uh, uh, help us to come to you in faith and in trust in jesus name, amen.